seconds. That's a lot on here. did 
He tried to go back to that, but yeah. you know, being well critical. But he did get that out, and of course, Murdoch, of course, was very, you know, kind of like yesterday, equivocating and wanting. You know, he's allowed to explain himself. He's very uh, crafty, as, as we might all understand, and so he wasn't 100% answering a yes or no fashion, but. Sometimes it kind of borderlined on, is he stalling? Uh, you know, as a as a non-lawyer, as a as a, a a person of vast intelligence, but who who could be like a potential juror, what do you think about his body language, the way he reacted? Yeah, and so I'll preface that by saying I am a counselor, and so I guess just like picking up on like some body language and some of the like habits in his like speech, um, definitely what really got annoying and seemed suspicious after time was just always repeating the question or asking for the question to be repeated even when it's just like not necessary I mean it's like you really don't know like what what lie we're talking about like it's, it's, it's clear as day it, it leads us to believe he's trying to buy himself more time he's trying to like fact check in his mind like am I keeping this lie straight it just, it just didn't sit well with me. And then, um, you know, there were a few times where I felt like there were some slip-ups. Uh, yeah, Hannah, tell us about, <laughs> uh, you know, what you perceive to be a slip-up from Murdoch today. Yeah, so one thing that I noticed, um, this is when they were discussing the golf cart and how the golf cart was, like, oriented, whether it was facing the left side or the right. You know, I was more listening, not watching, but... Um, Murdoch, at some point, he said something along the lines of, and I don't know if y'all caught this, he said, when we drove it out there, speaking of that night, and then stopped himself and said, when I, when I um, and that was, I mean, I, my jaw kind of dropped and my eyebrows raised a little bit, and I was like, we, so that would then put him there, perhaps that he was transporting Maggie to the kennels, which would mean that he didn't arrive later, you know, again, it's just kind of messing with the timeline. Right, so if that is a Freudian slip and not just a misstatement from a guy that's been on the witness stand for two days straight, what what does that give us with the timeline if he actually went down? Does that give anybody anything if he went down earlier? And again, you know, like maybe that, you know, maybe that one fact doesn't matter, but if anything, it's just, again, poking holes, I guess, in his Luke, you had a um, kind of a, a thought that was pretty interesting this morning. You remember that, what that was? I have interesting thoughts every morning. <laughs> I think you're talking about what I tweeted about? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is really just thinking about the state's theory of, okay, he is going to kill his family because he's about to get busted at law firm with a decade worth of theft financial impropriety, um, and he, the state's theory is that he then is going to kill his family, both of them, to distract, so you get sympathy, you buy yourself time, and they also have opined through Mark Kinsley that with Paul's death, that that, um, that kind of took the wind out of his sails for the value of his boat case, because the guy responsible who's criminally charged young man is dead in that neck of the woods, a jury was not going to hammer Alec Murdoch personally if he's grieving over the 
son. So it really kind of neutralized that. So my, my thought is, okay, if, that, if you're Alec Murdoch and that is on your mind and you don't have this history at all of domestic violence or anything, I mean, no one can say that there ever was, but let's say that is in your mind, why not stage some type of accidental shooting death while you're riding around for an hour or so that day with Paul just by himself? And then you can report back. You still have Maggie in your life. It serves the purpose of distraction, sympathy. You neutralize the vote case. Why would you have to kill both? Because he's testified that because Maggie owned Moselle outright, the thing he had the most equity in, that that was actually hurting him and getting future loans, using the collateral of that place because it's her, it was hers and it was tied up in probate. So that... Why kill both? Why, why, why annihilate your entire family if killing Paul would have served enough of that purpose and clearly been tragic and terrible on its own? Why kill your wife? That doesn't really make sense. I, I've got a couple other thoughts about things that don't make sense, but that's just a thought I had. You really only need to, need to kill Paul if that was in your mind. So I don't know if the state has even tried to address that, except they generally say when he gets confronted with some type of shame or impending disclosure, he will do violence. And of course, they bring up the roadside assistant Kevorkian, and he's really saying, look, I tried to end myself due to depression and shame and you know, wanting, not wanting Buster to deal with all the aftermath of my exposure here with these financial crimes since I just got fired from my law firm job. So you know, there's a lot of questions there. Of course, that's, again, uh, just a whole avenue of lies that are being used against him that really are, are, are making it hard for jurors to believe anything that would come out of his mouth, which is half the battle for the prosecution. So if they don't have the smoking gun, when he says, I did not kill Maggie and, and Paul, they want to say, well, we can't believe you because when you're speaking, you're lying. That's your history. Right, and that really goes to you know, what we lawyers call propensity evidence, which is normally not allowed, you're not supposed to be able to establish that you're, you do crimes that are not related to this trial, or not supposed to be in a trial to just show you're a bad guy or that you're a liar. That, that's, you know, prohibited by the rule unless a judge lets it in like Judge Newman has in this case. And, you know, the lawyer side of us will say, well, you know, they argued effectively to allow Judge Newman to let it in financial crimes as part of their exception to that general rule against propensity evidence by saying that it's, uh, it's motive, and there is an exception for motive, but in the way they used it to cross-examine Alex Murdoch, which is really the only effective thing they can do, is like get the lie count out, which is what Creighton Waters did really well basically in the last 15 minutes of his cross-examination. You know, it, it purely is propensity evidence. So, like, they didn't, they didn't really even try to tie the lie, all the lies into, here's why you would kill your family. It was just, we can't believe you because you're a liar. Um, and so, you know, I've got some critiques about Creighton Water's style in terms of, you know, I think I talked yesterday about, you know, generally the defense lawyers are more accustomed to cross-examination because, you know, that's all we have to do all day long in cross-examining, you know, the state's case as it's their burden. And, and a lot of prosecutors don't get as much experience in that because often defendants just don't take the stand. But 
the crate meeting would kind of, you know, he asked a lot of open-ended questions yesterday, and he did better today on that. He still asked some open-ended questions, and he would just basically kind of announce things like, and you man manufactured this alibi to um, cover your basis when you killed your family, and then out Murrah, of course, would go, no, I didn't. You know, he didn't, like, trap him in a, in a really bunch of spontaneous kind of moments of catching him on the stand through good cross-examination techniques, but he did finally, as much as I disagree with it, at the very end, got the lie count out. And he said, you know, Alex Murdoch, are you a, a family annihilator? Mm. And, you know, to Hannah's point, Alex Murdoch, of course, said, he repeated that, am I a family annihilator? And that, by kind of repeating it as his... Yeah, it's just like, just say no. As it is his frustrating style, it should be an easy no. Right. To, to Hannah, and also maybe the, some of the, the jurors in the jury box, that by asking that question kind of back in the way he does, it then allowed Creighton Waters to take off. Yeah. Because yeah. you lied to this victim, and you lied to that victim. And he went through about 50 different people in Alex Murdoch's life that he lied to and got finally got Alex Murdoch going, yes, yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. And then uh, and then very, very effectively. So he was, this is the first time in the whole cross-examination where Creighton Waters has really had Alex Murdoch on the ropes. Um, and then he kind of did the bombshell. And then, now, the bombshell would have been planned. It would have been a tidbit. He, he knew Alex Murdoch was going to say, you know, I only lied once I... To sled about going down to the kennels because of you know. Yeah, it's about the relationship. Right, right. You know because of the um, which relationship. So he he was claiming that he decided to lie the moment that sled asked him about his relationship with Maggie and Paul. Okay, right. And it, I mean, I, if I'm recalling that correctly. Um, and then the reasoning was because of the way they had charged Paul in the boat case criminally. The way they had done one of his friends wrong, well, I think they're referring to a former sheriff. Yeah, he even brought that in. They thought that that was, you know, that was wrongly accused a former sheriff. You know, ten years ago, he thought uh, Agent Owens was that same and officer. Then, yeah. And then, generally, his paranoid state due to his opioid abuse, you know, kind of had him being paranoid. And so he, I think, he tried to say, I didn't consciously decide to lie, but I, I recognized I lied in that moment. I just kept the lie up, but I never went to the kennel. And then Creighton Waters had the track laid for him. It had the lie count going for 30 or 40 different times and then played the responding officer's body camera where, you know, it's not, it's really, it was better done in the way Creighton kind of played it and then said, and you lied to him and he sat down, but it, it really, you know, you can hear Alex Murdoch saying, I hadn't seen them in like 45 minutes from earlier that night. I went to my mom's house and, you know, insinuating that he hadn't gone down to the kennels. So yeah. that was great by Creighton. Um, finally, he, he got laid the trap. You know, he saved it for the very, very last. Um, you know, one, you know. Talk, yeah, go ahead. So just about, obviously, explaining the lie about claiming he wasn't at the kennels that night probably was the most important thing he had to do when he testified. And so you would think that the defense team would I don't know how much control they have over Alex Murdoch, but you think that would be a, a focus of conversation to get that out. And Brian and I have represented tons of folks, particularly on a murder case, who, who need to testify to explain a lie. 
confronted with things, you know, correctional officers, everyday folk, and then of course folks who, who've been lying all their lives, so that's what they do, but it, it surprises people how readily and how scared even normal and accomplished folks who've never been in trouble will lie because you just get nervous. But you have to be able to explain that really logically, and, and if it were me, and I'm Jim Griffin or Dick Harpooley, and I'd be saying, look, Alec, you're a former prosecutor. You've got three generations of prosecutors. You know how law enforcement works. Is it possible that you are very much aware that the husband of the wife and family, you're always in that circle of suspicion right away, and maybe, hypothetically, <laughs> you lied because you wanted I mean, that was the fact that you were down there earlier shouldn't matter, and you just wanted them to focus their time and energy on the real killer. So exactly. it was a white lie in the moment. Yes, I should have been true, but I didn't want them spending any time on me. I'm not the guy. Focus on the real killers. Like that, to me, would have been a stronger thing than it was a million factors from junkies to maybe he's a cop to charge my friend to you know, distrust, GSRs, all that stuff. Just get it out. You know how they operate. You're a former prosecutor. Yeah. They're looking at you until you can clear yourself, basically. They said as much. That's what the lead investigator said. You're in the circle until you can get yourself out. So just own that and then move on. So that was, I think they could have done a better job of explaining that. Yeah, you know, I think it was a much, much, much stronger day for... Creighton Waters and yesterday, I think he found his feet eventually. You know, I think for the most part, if if the jury kind of first time hearing from Alex Murdoch in the trial itself, yesterday kind of were maybe warming up to him a little bit because most of that day was about direct examination. It's, it's, you know, meant to kind of humanize the defendant. Then I'd say today, maybe they got a little on edge with, some of his characteristics, as Hannah has expressed, in terms of repeating the questions, and maybe, I mean, he did kind of crank the tears up again a little bit pretty quickly when the body cam first responder video popped up, and you know, it, it makes one wonder. Um, but again, we have to kind of think, like, all the propensity evidence, all the financial crimes that are not part of this trial, um, well, I mean, they are, but he's not on trial for those crimes are the whole basis for the cross, you know, today and yesterday. So it's all about making the jury think he's a liar. And it just kind of, if I'm closing, I'm saying that's all they got. That's all they have because they don't have real evidence. I mean, circumstantial evidence is real evidence under our law. But if I'm Jim Griffith uh, in closing, I'm saying, but, you know, it's just not enough here, folks. It's not enough to overcome the tremendous burden that the state has to, to overcome with reasonable doubt. To give um, Waters another compliment, which is, I rarely do, but I'll, I'll say what was effective is, I mean, you obviously have a tr tremendous amount of ground to cover, and Alec clearly gets fuzzy on some things, but has a very specific memory on others. Now, on the one hand, having put up a lot of defendants to testify, that's, that can just be life. Because you're, if you're finding a family dead and slaughtered, and now we're years later, Monday morning quarterbacking it, you're, you, you're feeling more of an emotion mm -hmm. in 
your, your I mean your brain is scattered. If you're truly innocent and I mean God knows that you can recall exactly what you said other than dissecting body cameras and interview videos. But there were critical points that clearly the point Waters is making. You remember the stuff to help get your butt out of this jam, but you can't seem to remember the things to help me put you in the jam. So like clearly the, the one minute of Alex Murdoch sitting in his car at Almeida once he got there was a curious thing. And when asked about it, he had a, had a good reason. Yeah, I remember, you know, two and a half years ago, my phone happened to slip down between the seats. It's like, no, you didn't, but but your lawyers, let me finish, yeah. your lawyers prepared you and said, look, we do need to kind of have an explanation for that. What could it be? And he goes, oh, well, yeah, I remember that. But then it's like, well, the 283 steps you took in your house getting ready to go see your mom, what could you have been doing? He's like, I don't know, getting ready. And then you kind of had some of the you know, theatrical stuff. Were you on a treadmill? Were you doing jumping jacks? And, yeah. and so he doesn't remember that conveniently. Of course, that is something that Waters effectively pointed out. Mm-hmm. On that point of remembering some things and not remembering others, I mean, my sister-in-law texted me. She was watching the trial and she was you know kind of like how Hannah was really you know caught that moment with my wife wife? no my my um my wife's sister Uh, that sister that sister-in-law not your wife um and she's texting me and she says oh my gosh he can't remember the last words he ever said to Maggie Mm. like but he remembers the way her laugh makes him and so you know as like he's guilty as homemade said and I said well you know like I can see you know how that could not be found to be credible because you know if you if you really thought he's a victim of his wife and son being killed you're gonna give him a pass and say he's traumatized right but, or, or maybe it wasn't important to him and but if you think he's you know a pos uh then you're gonna say you're full of it and i don't i don't buy it because you really did it so you know that's what craig has to play with luke let's talk about and we're gonna talk law here for a little bit because this is you know a discussion of law we are lawyers um talk about what made us all cringe today a good bit and we're gonna legally it's called a doyle violation luke talk talk to anyone interested in the law about (laughs) the offensive doyle violations going on in court yesterday and today well what is a doyle violation basically you heard a repeated pattern by creighton waters really disparaging the fact that just yesterday, which of course is the first time that Alec Murdoch was called to testify about this case in his trial, only yesterday we now hear this story that, oh, you were down there now, but, you know, you we're just hearing it now. How convenient that you took a shower first, but only yesterday, the first time. You're trying to tell this jury for the first time. So, like, the whole point of that kind of line of theatrical questioning is they're trying to say, you're a liar, you're making this up, because we have not heard this from you before. But there's a Supreme Court case called Doyle that says, look, you have a right to remain silent. So you can't use their silence against them. You can't go, oh, wow, looky here. Because let me tell you what, if Alex Murdoch had written a letter, dear Creighton Waters, um, from jail week one, I need to 
I've got some discovery in this case. It seems like I inadvertently said I wasn't at the kennels. Um, I recall now, now that I'm not dealing with all that stress and my mind is clear, I actually was. They go, oh, oh, how convenient, boy. That's self-serving hearsay. That's, that's self-serving hearsay. We don't want to hear that nonsense. And I literally have had that situation before. So it's, it's all a tactic to say you're conveniently manufacturing your testimony to fit the evidence, but you can't do that. He has a right to say nothing at all, and that is a very cherished and protected right under the Fifth Amendment, and you can't critique that. Now, I know Jim Griffin kind of objected to that. He didn't really cite Doyle. He cited, you know, he just said Fifth Amendment. Just Fifth Amendment, Your Honor. And Creighton said, like, well, he opened the door. There was a, a little squishy line of questioning where Murdoch was trying to push back and saying, you know, I'm an addict. I even tried to, you know, let y'all know that and discuss that. Y'all weren't hearing me. And it wasn't about necessarily the kennel, you know, revelation that he was actually down there. It was about other things, but Judge Newman was happy to say that that was allowed because he opened the door. It, it was a door violation. There's a lot of reasons why, if there's a conviction, and I suspect it will be, that this trial will probably come back on appeal, unfortunately, for the taxpayers of South Carolina. Um, so maybe not for the movie writers and everybody else. I did see a tweet that was like, Hollywood wants him to be guilty. Right. And I think they, someone thought John Grisham was in the audience. Uh, it was <laughs> My the, dad would it, love that. It was the mayor of, of Baltimore, right? Yeah, it was like a mayor. Who was, <laughs> John Grisham lookalike. But so that was a dual violation. It's the state is very, they're less concerned, it seems, about trying a very clean case and more about getting conviction. And sometimes you see that, especially in the state level and not the federal level. And it's, it is what it is. But I did, uh, it, it perturbed me enough where I sent a pointless tweet out into the universe about it today. So there's, we've been talking a lot about how Creighton Waters really picked him up, picked himself up by his bootstraps and did a much, much better job today. You know, two, I guess I'll give, Two points to Alex Murdoch today. Well, to, I would like to flesh those out. Um, one was he really kind of an, emo an emotionally toneful way uh, upon questioning about, you know, they're going to say, you just always try to put it on the, the boat case, the boat case. That's your, you know, your theory and, you know, random five foot two vigilantes from the boat case. And you know, that, uh, that got Alex Murdoch kind of an emotional response where he said, listen, you know, I never thought those kids on the boat or their parents had anything to do with this. And then he kind of said, I really, what I meant by that was I felt the coverage of that case and the leaked kind of half investigation that then spiraled into a lot of media and social media theories got in the ears of someone evil or some people evil, to your point about the one shooter or two shooter right. kind of slip ups. He said someone with hate in their heart because you know that that's why I think did this because you know from social media that this triggered somebody evil because no one but an evil, hateful person could have done what they did to my family the way it came across them. That for me resonated because it was kind of organic and it wasn't scripted and it wasn't a repeated question sure, it was yeah. a let me set you straight here so i give that one point score that's not the only thing good out murdoch did today other than this you know he did at the end on redirect now with 
Jim Griffin. It wasn't even a question that Jim tried to elicit. It was, but again, it was about, you know, you didn't kill Paul and you didn't kill Maggie. And he just, you know, he said, no, of course not. And I think Jim was walking away and he said, let me tell you this, I would hurt myself before I would ever, you know, do any harm to Paul or Maggie if I felt like I was under pressure. Like I would, all, my first move would be to hurt myself and clearly if you're to believe him, he did try to kill himself. Mm-hmm. That resonated a little bit too. And so I think those are the two big points that he scored for himself. I mean, he was, he's been cross-examined for two days straight. Um, I think by the time Jim Griffin did the redirect, he was kind of, was ready to get his client off the stand, so to speak. But, um, Somewhat tired redirect, but you know, you also didn't want to belabor the point as much as Waters did. <clears throat> Can I uh, push a little theme and theory analysis on this? Yeah. Thank so I was know. thinking today, under the state's theory, obviously they believe that Murdoch killed his family down there at the kennels and then rode very quickly back up and tried to lie about ever being down there and quickly go visit his, his mom to manufacture now. So, and the the kennel video does really give us a glimpse, like a 50-some second glimpse into the family's kind of demeanor and what was going on, really just like four or five minutes um, prior to the killings, at least for what we think, based on the phones going silent forever. So, the family demeanor seemed very warm, jokey, cordial. We're talking about... When we're looking at a dog tail, Cash's tail, we can hear Alec in the background, Maggie, they're talking about Bubba and this chicken. And we've heard more testimony. So, all right, we all agree with that. But under the state's theory, because guns, guns are not readily stored down there at the kennels or on the hangar. That wasn't a normal thing. Sometimes Paul would, like, leave them down there inadvertently. But no one can really say that occurred on this day. But under the state's theory... Alec would have had to have traveled down there, essentially armed to the teeth with an assault rifle and a shotgun. Uh, these, these weapons that really belong to Paul. <laughs> and just be like, doody doody do, ho ho, hey guys, it's, it's almost nine o'clock at night. <laughs> Let me get that chicken uh, out of bubble. We're not turkey hunting, we're not dove hunting, we're not hog hunting, we're just, we're here to say hey to dogs. Don't mind me on this golf cart with these two weapons. And, like, I think it just doesn't make sense. If he had come down there, either for his, by his account on his own slightly later, or by the state's account, maybe earlier with them, you think that things would have been a little tense. There would, there would have been, like, Big Red, Paw Paw, what's she doing? <laughs> it, would have, it should have been, like, uh, what's going on here? But, no, we're, we're minutes into the... The kennel video, and all we're talking about is Bubba and Cash's tail. So your point, if he's coming down armed to the teeth There's, to, to engage with his family, it would be I think not so relaxed and warm and joking. No, I think if he had that plan, it would have been a killing right away as soon as he could ambush them. I don't think, I think something would have been seeming not quite right at almost 9 o'clock at night if he just trips down there with his with two different weapons. So like that doesn't really make sense because you can tell their demeanor is relatively normal at that point and they weren't going on hunting. They weren't about to tour the land and look at, you know, hog damage, you know, the type of thing where you might take a gun 
So it seems like Gun was there. We know his truck wasn't there because of the OnStar data. But we know he was there, so if he got there, which is obviously by some type of cart or ATV, he would have had to have those guns with him. It seems like his family would have been weirded out by that at that time of day, in that time. So I think that's, if the jury is really thinking or if someone thinks about that point, that could be something to benefit him if you're arguing in closing, at least as I were. Yeah, it just makes me think about that. I mean, if he, let's say it's a combination of these truths or half-truths, and let's say they did, they did go down there he didn't want to go because he was trying to muster the courage to, to do his attack. And he also, that allowed him time to go into the gun room and get some guns that he wanted to do this with. And then he carted down there in that green golf cart and, you know, played the family man for a little bit with the kennels and the chicken and then had those guns in the golf cart. So they're not, they're not freaking out because they're, they're on the backseat of the golf cart. And then he does what he does with Bubba and the chicken. He gets video recorded and then goes back to the golf cart and says, and comes back and kills them both. But, but, stop, big, stop. but Big Pappy, Big Red, <laughs> why do you have this Blackout 300 in one hand and you're pulling a chicken out of Bubba's mouth with the other? What's going so, on? It's almost but, like. But then he has to, he has to somehow not have blood on him. But he, you know, to so have. Little Red Riding Hood. But Papa, what, what big teeth do you have? Like, oh what are you doing? It's like, why are you armed right now? That beer is definitely uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. my brother. But to uh, Hannah's point, the golf cart is not parked where they always park it. And right. know, Alex kind of did a, a mumbling, bumbling. He, he was a little surprised by that photograph. And to the and maybe Creighton's going to close on yeah. that issue and kind of bring it to, to bear. But I think what Creighton will probably say is, after you got done killing your family, and of course somehow not getting blood, you rushed back so quickly, you didn't park it to charge it, you just hopped out of it, and you then ran to go establish your alibi at Almeida. And so maybe that's why it's in evidence right now, it's because Creighton already knew that's not where they would always park it. Yeah. Because that did seem to... It threw did, him off. It did throw him off. I didn't want to say disturb, but it definitely threw Alex off when he was presented in a very confident manner with that photograph by Creighton Waters because he was trying to assess well, when was it taken or you talking right. in the aftermath of the oh, incident. Like, what do you, you know, and so that did unnerve him. So we'll have to see how they use that in closing for sure. A good point. Yeah. One thing, and I mentioned this yesterday, one thing that I think would have been really valuable is he keeps obviously referring to all of these social media threats that Paul was receiving and that that is who he th he thinks that it is someone who has sent you know all these with hate in their heart and all these evil messages to Paul that that must be who killed him or you know and Maggie and all that stuff. Let's see then if there's anything that we've learned about this case is that our cell phones have it all. So show us that. Show us the text or the social media or the Snapchat or whatever that's that's making a death threat to Paul now. When Paul shows up and is no longer alive, I would think that the very first person that you would probably think is a suspect is someone who threatened to kill him. And no doubt. I mean, Paul and his social media, unless he took it all down, probably did get some trolling and, and totally. some threatening communication. So, yeah. I mean, if you're going to, if, if Alec Murdoch today on the stand in a 
halfway believable emotional way saying, I think it was somebody that got riled up through social media that had hate in their heart and was basically evil to start with did this. Let's start seeing some threats. Let's, right. let, let's let the jury see these threats coming through Facebook or Instagram or whatever it was. Snapchat. We've seen a Snapchat video. Yeah. You know, Snapchat's supposed to go away, but when you subpoena it, you can get you can get the information. Um, and you know, the defense doesn't have the burden of proof, but if you're in such a deep hole and you've got so much explaining to do, that would have been nice. I think they probably would have, could they have found any, but you know, I guess to his credit, they did identify on his 911 call, he says, I should have known. And he did pretty deep, clearly detail that he was referring to Done. I've never heard that done. 
And Harpoolian did try to say, well, it's been done before, and it, and it turns out, like he said, well, I, some defense lawyer did it against me one time, and I opposed it back when I was a prosecutor. And so Newman was kind of like, uh, I'm not inclined to do that, and I've never seen it done, but you know, we could mull this over. I don't think he's going to allow it, but the question is, why do you want that? Um, yes, there's a lot to cover, but I don't care if it's a four-week trial. It doesn't mean you close for four hours. There's just only so much attention span that a jury can muster. You have to hit your high notes. I think you close for an hour. That's about all they can take. Um, and you really have to sink it in the things that they must deliberate on, the things they have to take home in a persuasive way. It'll almost just be distracting. I, I suspect when Harpooley did the opening, I was thinking Griffin would do the closing, although I've done both opening and closing sometimes. But I would think that maybe Harpooley just wants a little piece of the action at the closing. <laughs>
so we have probably four or five more witnesses by the defense. I, you know, I think our expectation is that we're going to hear from a pathologist to talk about cause of death from something that the defense wants to get out of this witness of their own. We're probably going to hear from a firearms ballistics style expert and possibly a couple more family members. Yeah, I think well. his siblings have been, yeah. What, what do you mean? So some people want to know about the DNA under Maggie's fingernails. Um, and like, I guess that just hasn't been talked about as much. Is it correct that there was DNA of like the garden under her fingernails? Not really. Okay. <laughs> so the star, star mix kind of the way they do DNA these days is they set it up in proposition sets. So which is more likely? And so it turned out that the DNA under her left hand, they're not saying it was a match to CB Rowe, the gardener, but they said of what we have, we're gonna compare, he was the closest thing, or compared to an unknown, unidentified male that we don't have. And so the, the unknown, unidentified male was like, one bazillion to one, and CB, CB Rowe is basically the next best thing. Okay. So, but it's definitely there, and that would be a huge feature of closing yeah. because, yeah, I mean, they crossed the DNA analyst about, you know, it was a small set of alleles under the fingernails for the DNA set, and it, I think it was like three, and so the DNA expert, you know, basically said, I didn't send it off to CODIS, which is the kind of online DNA database of offenders that law enforcement keeps, because the, the allele set was not large enough, and per our policy, we just don't send it. And Jim Griffin said, well, you could have, right? If you, if you DNA analyst said, you know, screw the policy, we're interested in this case, it's big, let's just send it off anyway and see what comes back. Yes, they could have done that, and it could have matched to somebody. And so then, let's say it had matched to somebody. Well, what does it mean? It means that, you know, there's touch DNA, which you can get by just literally picking up or touching something. Our fingers are full of it. And then there's DNA that comes from, you know, fluids, um, blood and, and, you know, spit and other stuff. And then there's, you know, then there's DNA that sloughs off us all the time in our skin. But you know, this was kind of referred to as touch DNA. And so, you know, Maggie could have picked up a pencil at the nail salon to s sign out or whatever and p potentially gotten DNA under a fingernail that was associated with somebody else. Or maybe she brushed against the person that was attacking her. Um, so it, it's, it, it's kind of a red herring, a little bit confusing that there was mention of the grounds person, but it was in a subset that was way less than the likelihood of this other individual with those same kind of characteristics. So it is confusing, but it'll definitely be a feature of closing arguments. Right, definitely. To plant reasonable doubt and the fact that Sled could have done more to try to figure out who matched that, at least by putting it into Curtis. Yeah. Um, we've got a request to grade the attorneys on the case, giving them a A to F grade yes. scale, or you can plead the fifth. Mm, I mean, oh, I don't know if I want to grade, but I'll tell you who I think has been a sleeper attorney that's, that, that's no one's really talking about. Well, I'm sure people are, but I think Dave Fernandez has done a really good job with the witnesses he's had. And he's a, you know, he's not, he's a younger lawyer. Well, he's probably in his 40s, but 
or late 30s, but um, he's not as, as seasoned as Creighton Waters or John Metters, but he's been pretty refreshing from a prosecution standpoint. Um, he's, he did great with the expert for uh, Sutton for the defense. Yeah. I, you know, I thought he was a tricky expert. He did a good job with him. He's really done a good job with all of his witnesses. He hasn't been overly dramatic. He's been good on his feet. He's been good with the facts. He has a, probably a better um, cross-examination style than, than his bosses. I'll just yeah. say that. Um, who, who are you grading as doing a good job, Luke? I would agree with that. Um, I think Jim Griffin, although he has opened the doors <laughs> twice, I don't agree with those rulings necessarily, but I think you know, he's certainly guilty of coming close enough where it was easy for Judge Newman to rule on that. I think he's been a stronger between himself and, and Harpooling so far. Maybe my mind will be changed. I think uh, I actually, I, I will put Bill Barber as kind of a sleeper. And I'm impressed with what he does kind of in the same boat as Fernandez. I agree with that. He's done a phenomenal job on a lot of the theory, Murdoch has conveniently left his phone at his house so that he wouldn't have a, a phone record of being down at Moselle, or being down at the Kennels, slaughtered his family, and he's the one that's actually picked up Maggie's phone, which allows it to record 59 steps or so, while he's hustling back on his golf cart to then begin his alibi getaway. There is a time period of several minutes when her phone is not moving at all, but then his is registering those 283 steps. So if he's in possession of her phone in his own, they should be registering steps at the same time. The only way that that could not happen is if he was somehow smart enough to think about that and just ride up on the golf cart, put her phone like in a cup holder of the Suburban, run upstairs, do his cleanup, hide his guns, all that stuff, get his foot while with his phone, and then jump in his own truck to start it up and drive towards Almeida. But I mean, that nugget that, that they got out of Britt Dove, a very smart and likable agent for the state, he said, no, that those phones were not possessed by the same person during that time. They just weren't. And that's something that you hang on to <clears throat> for dear life. So we, so Luke and I, when we do our closings, because on big cases, there's so much evidence, like that nugget that Luke was just referring to, we would have as an entire slide in a visual PowerPoint so that the jury can really not just be reminded of it, but can really, you know, see it. And I, I would do a PowerPoint. I would have Britt Dove's face on it with his quote yep. and his data slide right next to it with a side-by-side -side comparison. And I, it would be my life raft. And I would hang on to it for dear life. And try, and try to empower that jury to, to say, look, as much as... This guy stinks as much as he's a liar and he's a cheat. He will be accounted for. He will, that he will have other court courtrooms to give him justice on those cases. He's not walking out of jail, but do not do a miscarriage of justice will be my closing argument. And this tells you he did not have Maggie's phone. 
We did we did hear a little bit of jury nullification today tactic by Jim Griffin when you know we've had so much about the financials. Um, you know, he got up on redirect today and said, "Now, Alec, you know about the financials. I mean, you are separately charged with those crimes, right?" Yes, I am, and, and you know, and he's been in basically confessing to them throughout his entire examination. So I, I think that was purely meant to let the jury know he will face accountability on those crimes. It, and that helps if there is reasonable doubt on the murder, which I think there is. It just depends on what the jury believes. But then, if you know, if, if they're battling back there in the jury room and they're wrestling with the facts and thinking about Luke's PowerPoint slide on the step count. And if they're kind of trying to figure out what to do, I guarantee you back there, they're going to say, well, well, for those that want to convict him, and we've got these folks that believe there's enough reasonable doubt not to convict on double murders, guys, he's going to go down on these financials. So, and they, and they do, they do horse trading. They do horse trading in the jury room. They really do. Um, you'll see them split the baby on certain charges. If there's multiple charges in a case, you'll see them think about, you know, normally the, the state would be jumping up and down about any reference to other pending charges as a reference to, you can't let them know he's facing in other courts. I mean, you're not allowed to let the jury know that murder carries 30 to life in prison. And so similarly, you're not really supposed to let him know that he's looking at a bunch of time elsewhere. But um, by that little tactic today by Jane Griffin, it purely is to put a seed in the mind of the jury when they go back there in the jury room to say, listen, if, if people got some doubt here, he's going down on other stuff. You know, maybe it helps us do it, make our job easier here because he's certainly going to go to prison on the financials. So that I, th I thought that, that was a pretty subtle but clever tactic. And, you know, the state can't object because they introduced the financial crimes. So normally they would object, but they can't really under these circumstances. Right, and that might play in the minds of the jury when they deliberate. Yeah. Um, I just added a little poll so you can vote if I you think- I was wondering what you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can vote if you think Alec Murdoch is guilty or not. Um, but we do have a lot of questions about the clothes. And I know that that was, was that discussed yesterday? Asking him, you know, he was saying, I've, I stayed at my brother's, I stayed over here, I stayed here so my clothes are everywhere. I don't know where that blue shirt is from that Snapchat video. What do you think is going to come of the clothes? Or is it kind of, that's it? I think uh, they're not going to be produced, but I think he basically, I think the defense won that battle because they point out, and rightly so, like, well, do they ever ask you for those clothes? No. Um, and also we heard in, on direct the big battle, they weren't even interested in, in the clothes until <laughs> my lawyers filed this motion, you know, showing that they had this blood spatter expert saying my clothes were riddled with spatter, but it wasn't even blood. Like, so I think it's just an insinuation of getting rid of evidence. Uh, but I think Murdoch was like, look, I asked Blanca about it as soon as they confronted me. It wasn't some hide thing, I wanted to like track this down and you know, he was scattered. He wasn't gonna live at Moselle. He was bouncing around and you know, it wasn't something that really cops were interested in off the bat. So I think I, I guess I find it interesting that he's so willing to provide like the OnStar data and the cell phone data because 
in some way he knew what that was going to say. Well, unless but, he's innocent. Uh, sure, oh, sure. <laughs> you gotta have both sides, right? Unless he's innocent. Um, I mean, yeah. But, like, why would you, if, I mean, even if you are innocent, though, would you not want to produce the clothes? If he's got blood on his shirt? I think, I think he's saying he would have produced the blue shirt and the pants or whatever in that Snapchat video if, if he had been asked. They just weren't interested in it until they started getting okay. monkey well, with the Blanca testified she washed whatever clothes were in the okay. shower. So, like, it's kind of... I think I missed that part. It's, uh, it's a moot point at this point, but he wants to push back on the fact that they that he's hiding things. Mm-hmm. Or his life was chaos is what he's saying. And he also explained how hot and sweaty it was, so how natural it would be to shower. And, and one thing I noted, as we saw the sled in car video again today, Owens, I mean, you can, I've spent so many nights in South Carolina in the middle of the summer outside, and it is hot, and it is humid, and I could hear the crickets in the background, and I could see Owens just repeatedly wiping his bald head with a rag, and, and Murdoch was just sticky wet, so I was like, you know what? And that was the next day, right? I'm like, if I'm a juror and I'm thinking about whether it's hot out there or not, and whether it would be natural for him to take a shower after inspecting the fields with Paul, well, another PowerPoint, another PowerPoint of Owen's sweat wiping. <laughs> <laughs> so that does tend to track. Let's see what else is going on here. What do you guys? So yeah, we kind you kind of touched on this earlier that. You're wanting the, the jury to understand that, you know, if you're wanting justice for these financial crimes or justice for, you know, whatever else it is, like, you don't have to hang your hats on this case to, like, find that justice. What do you think that will look like moving forward for those crimes that he's been accused of? Well. And will the drugs come in? Like, I mean, because obviously he's illegally doing drugs also. Well, not the drugs. I mean, they have to have body of the crime type evidence but like he, he his testimony has ironclad slam dunk uh made a conviction on those if there was ever any doubt which there really wasn't um that those those convictions are formality the question is what would a judge do with it if, if he gets a not guilty here or a hung jury they're gonna try him again um i mean hell they might this would be interesting if they got a Home jury, which would be annoying for the state and would cause a big reset. You know, do they take his words, which are basically a confession to all his financial crimes, fast track him, fast track a trial on that, which would force him to plead guilty? Some some judge probably lights him up, gives him you know twenty years or something like that. Twenty years is a good. And then then I don't know if Waters would do this, but then Waters could come to him and be like, all right. How about two counts of voluntary manslaughter for 20? He's not, not going to do that. No. I mean, without the circus and without the international focus on this case, maybe if it was a similar case without the focus. But if he gets found not guilty or it hangs, they're going to just try him all over again with the same level of intensity that they've done this time. They just, it's, there's too much politicking. But the other way, if, if he got a not guilty, then they would invest a lot of energy grandstanding on the financial crimes and try to get as much. I mean, it's pretty rare for a judge to give flat out consecutive sentences on a plea, and it certainly would have to be a plea. 
Especially if he's not working. <laughs> if, he's, if he's building furniture and lead correctional, he's not going to be able to pay back the law firm. But um, so, all right, that's what I think. Well, we can use the last like ten minutes or so to take any questions, remaining questions. A good beer. Highly recommend Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Sponsor us, Sierra Nevada. <laughs> tucked into the mountains of North Carolina and it is a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so go ahead, ask any questions. We'll be taking those live. Um, have they, this was a question that just came in, have they confirmed that their guns were used in the murders or that it's just that match? Well, if we have a ballistics expert from the defense, we may, oh, have, might get closer. We may have some interesting so it seems push back on that. It seems pretty obvious that the gun they're they're trying to say, the state is trying to say, is the, the replacement 300 blackout. And that was due to the testimony of one of Paul's friends that described test firing that gun from the side porch where some of those casings collected and some others out at the shooting range were a match to the ones around Maggie's body. Now I do take issue with this. You usually see a match described as based on test fires. The, the microscopic, unique markings that will come from an actual fire gun. Now, Paul Greer said that these were matched based on the gun cycling through and ejecting those. And so, just the mechanical machinations. And so, I, I, I don't see that very much. I, I, I'm a gun guy, I do lots of gun cases, I'm not a gun expert, but I originally thought that um, the defense was really going to go after that and, and maybe bring in their own firearms expert to say that that would not produce a match from that type of cycling through. But then as the case went on, it seemed to be that they were kind of establishing so much that Paul was so loose with his firearms that there was an opportunity for, let's say, random assailants who really case the property to like get access to some family guns to do this crime. So I don't know. I, I feel like maybe they've kind of left it there. And if they did that, they don't really need to fight that evidence. Sometimes a defense lawyer, it, it's best to not fight things that you can't win. You have to embrace the bad facts and not swim, up, swim upstream. So I don't know. I think we're definitely going to hear from pathologists, but it seems pretty clear right now that gun is a family gun if Paul Greer is to be believed. Um, a question that we've gotten kind of every night, but I know that things can change and people's opinions can change as the trial continues. Just going down the line, what are your thoughts? Do you think Alec Murdoch killed Maggie and Paul? I don't. Okay. I, I'm sticking to what I said last night. I don't think he 
vision killing. But I think he has a greater idea of who could have than what he's really telling. I mean, his response today about the social media kind of conspiracy theorists that someone with evil in their heart might have gotten the wrong idea about Paul and been overwhelmed by social media and decided to do something evil, that resonated a little bit, but I still think that's not the true answer. I don't think he did it. I honestly don't think he did it, but I do feel like there's something else between Eddie and whatever else he was getting into. I mean, I know he talked a lot today about how much Oxycontin he consumes, which was a great quantity, but those payments were just so much, so much money. I, I'm this is an unpopular opinion, but I'm with you. I, I mean, I based on his visceral reaction, which I do find genuine. I mean, again, I've had clients produce cro produce crocodile tears on scan, but not snot. I think. And you don't have this history of domestic violence. I mean, when I when I, we represent folks or involved in cases where dad kills mom or even a child, I mean, it, you can just a lot of times you can see it coming. Here, and, and we've got to get a sense of his personality through the testimony as part of the humanizing process. Does it strike me as someone that would erupt in violence or you know particularly? So I think I do think. That he knows. I mean, he's kind of allowing it to linger out as this concept of someone random, maybe some somebody got influenced on social media and took out some justice for the boat wreck victims. But I think with these payments of five hundred thousand dollars to Eddie, I think he got in deep with some drug folks. Maybe was being extorted. Maybe was behind on money. Maybe Eddie was being extorting, extorted, and extorting him. And I almost feel like he knows, but if he ties it in himself to what he knows about it being related to his own drug use, I mean, that's so much guilt on him. He basically killed his own family if it's due to something with his drug use and somebody that he owes money to. And maybe he just doesn't want to admit that to the world. But he's definitely holding, he's definitely a liar, he's a thief. But I, I'm with Brian, he's just not. There's more that he knows, but I don't think he pulled the trigger. And I, and I do think that the scene itself lends itself to two shooters. Mm. Um, due to different weapons and the way they were and the bodies, I think this was a team of folks. So I think, I don't think he did it, but I think in his heart of hearts, he might think he's responsible and doesn't want to come clean about it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I think. I think it kind of using his own logic against him, saying that he would hurt himself before hurting his family, right? Well then, what would make him not pay someone else to kill his family, but pay to have someone shoot at himself? I just feel, you know, if, if, if those means are there and that need, needed to be the end goal, then maybe somehow being involved, if he's guilty, or again, obviously with the cartel and maybe they're sending a message or something like that. But yeah, I, um, I think he knows more than he's letting on, but I don't know that I believe that he pulled the trigger. Yeah. Um, we got some questions about what would you have done differently as the prosecution, or just maybe even a few things. Been better. <laughs> <laughs> let let Dave Fernandez do more. Uh, um, I don't think I'll, it's always easy for us to money 
we can see how they're trying to tie it in. They got lost in it sometimes. They, I think they over-tried it. Um, John Metter should have been cross-examining uh, Alec Murdoch. But I think they spent so much time on it that at the end of the day, the defense can say, look, they're spending all this time on it because they don't have the goods on the actual crime we're here for. Mm -hmm. So I would have probably had the financial stuff as a feature, but I mean, you go back 10, 15 years of some client he stole from, that doesn't, that's not going to be a motive for the killing of his family. That's a definition of propensity. Right, right. I mean, I, if I wanted to go to motive, I probably would have been both case and that confrontation that day by his law partners, um, by the accountant. So I think they just kind of overcooked it with the financials. Last question, we'll end on this, and we kind of talked about this yesterday as well, but do you think that the dog's like behavior or demeanor will be brought back in? I know you all kind of processed that live time yesterday with the killer would have needed to either wait for the dogs to be put up or the dogs were comfortable with the killer. I'm just wondering, you know, there's so much discussion about these collars. Yeah. And they're, they're GPS collars, so in theory... They're doing what Paul's cell phone is doing. They're showing his whereabouts in a pretty precise fashion. I mean, if you, let's say you download the data from the collars, that would give you in real time exactly when the dogs are put up. Mm -hmm. And I think it's safe to say the killing wouldn't have happened until the dogs are put up. And that may help with the timeline. That could expand it for the defense mm -hmm. to give Murdoch more time. It could do a lot. So I'm just wondering I mean, if the dogs got put up when Alex's phone is registering steps at the house, that's not guilty. But right, it would be have to be that would be a bombshell. That would be a bombshell. And I, you know, I, I'm not anticip anticipating the, a digital forensic expert on the dog collar issue. We've already had a digital forensic expert. We have we've had a phone expert, but I don't know. Like, you might need somebody that can download, you know, someone with the manufacturer of the dog collar. But that would be fascinating, as Luke's right, you know, as soon as the dogs are put up, the killing could then proceed. And if Murdoch's already at the house, that really is good for his defense. It makes sense. I mean, I don't think Bubba's going to let somebody kill all, all the talk about Bubba, how strong he was, he's stubborn, he's also playful, uh, Maggie loved him, had a real bond, would take him everywhere. He's not letting anybody kill Maggie without him probably getting shot himself, um, trying to protect Maggie. So as soon as, if there's GPS showing when he was placed in the kennel, that would be fascinating. If it was after the state's time of when their phones were silenced forever, and then you see dogs getting put in a kennel, coming from the defense team if that was what they had up their sleeve. That's what we would do. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, look, if there's GPS data, which has been alluded to, like what's the point of Jim Griffin bringing out the fact that they have GPS data if something wasn't going to be done with that? Stay tuned to this channel. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll discuss maybe Monday? Sure. We'll talk as we'll talk much as we can.
be back again for another live um, Monday evening after court adjourns. Uh, so we'll see you all then. In the meantime, you can keep up with us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, think, uh, and YouTube. We'll be uploading like these full videos to YouTube. So if you missed any chunks at all, came in late, had to leave early, obviously wouldn't be hearing this now, but you can watch it all on YouTube. So thank you all so much. You guys make this really fun, and we enjoy doing these lives with you. And go have yourself a Sierra Nevada. And have yourself, <laughs> have yourself a Sierra Nevada. <laughs>